Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. We rely on the generosity of our listeners to sustain this ministry and the message of Messianic Judaism for all nations. Please consider making a donation to Beth Emanuel by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. I spent a week with Justin Martyr, working on a paper about soteriology and eschatology in his tedious book, Dialogue with Trifo. It was born out of something we discovered last summer in the green room. Last summer, we were reading Dialogue with Trifo in the green room on Shabbat afternoons. Why? Because Justin Martyr was so early. Justin was a Gentile Christian, only a generation or two from the apostles, born in Samaria, Shechem, modern Nablus. His Dialogue with Trifo is his version of a real conversation that took place with a Jewish thinker and philosopher named Trifo on the docks of the city of Ephesus. Sholem Dovber and I were reading Justin because we were looking for bugs in amber, to use my Jurassic Park analogy, preserved from the apostolic era. That is to say, we were looking for sayings of the Master or other apostolic-era teachings that might be preserved in this second-century literature. For example, Justin transmits an early tradition about Yeshua's job as a carpenter. The Gospel tells us Yeshua worked as a carpenter in Nazareth, but we don't know what that means. The Greek word literally means shipwright, but the same word, tekton, is used generally in first-century Greek to mean any type of craftsman. So people speculate, what kind of tectone was Yeshua of Nazareth? Was he a stonemason, a construction worker? Justin tells us, He was deemed a carpenter, for he was in the habit of working as a carpenter when among men making plows and yokes, by which he taught the symbols of righteousness in an act of life. That's a useful bit of knowledge, passed on orally until Justin wrote it down. So Shalom and Chaya and I went into dialogue with Trifo, looking for bits of apostolic age teachings of the apostles, teachings of the master, apostolic traditions, and tales. It was a torturous experience. I find reading Justin almost intolerable. Somewhere around two-thirds into it, I called it quits. But by then, we had already found a lot of great stuff, including the following piece of agrafa, I'm going to teach you today. Agrafa are sayings of the Master that circulated in oral tradition among the disciples of Yeshua. Written Gospels were a secondary thing that came later. Originally, the body of Yeshua's teachings were orally transmitted, as with the sages and the oral law. That was normal Jewish learning in those days, and that's why a disciple's real job was to memorize his teacher's words. When you read something in a book, it doesn't stick in your head. Yeshua's words were memorized. The written Gospels were a later innovation. But among the original disciples, memorization was preferred over reading. The point is that Yeshua's teachings were in oral circulation among the early disciples, and a lot of them never made it into the canonical Gospels. Some of them show up in non-canonical Gospels, like Thomas. Others can be found in early Christian writings like Epistle of Pseudo-Barnabas, in sources like Papias, and in the Apostolic Fathers like Justin and Irenaeus, or Church Fathers like Clement of Alexandria, or in the teaching of Peter, preserved in Clementine homilies. 
I have always considered it my obligation to find and understand these otherwise lost teachings of Yeshua. As he said to the twelve, gather up the pieces that remain, let nothing go to waste. Here's the one we found last summer in Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trypho. In whatsoever things I shall take you, in these I shall judge you. Give that a good think. Sounds obscure and esoteric. It's not. It sounds like a riddle only because of the antiquated English of the Philip Schaff translation of the Greek, which is an academic mid-19th century type of English. I asked ChatGPT to retranslate the original Greek, along with several key chapters of Dialogue with Trypho, which the AI obligingly did instantly. Here's a better rendering of the Greek, as translated by AI. Therefore, our Master Yeshua the Messiah said, In whatever state I find you, in that I will also judge you. Dialogue 47 So once again, In whatever state I find you, in that I will also judge you. What's this mean? To better understand, I want to take you into Dialogue with Trypho. We're going to drop into the middle of the discussion around chapter 25 where Trypho the Jew realizes where Justin is going with all this talk about Jesus and the Christians. He realizes that Justin believes the Jewish people have been disinherited from the kingdom and replaced by Gentile Christians. That's because Justin teaches classic replacement theology. It's what the church believed already in the second century. But this was still early, and replacement theology was still developing. It was still under construction, so to speak, and Justin himself ended up being one of the main architects of the emerging theology. His dialogue with Trypho became enormously influential on later church fathers. Anyway, somewhere on the shores of the Aegean, just outside 2nd century Ephesus, Trypho is politely listening to Justin as he goes on and on about how the Jews are out and the Christians are in. Trypho interrupts Justin's monologue and raises an objection with a pointed question. What are you saying? That none of us will inherit anything on the holy mountain of God? Dialogue 25. The holy mountain refers to Jerusalem and specifically the Temple Mount therein. The question means, are you saying that Jews will not be included in the kingdom or receive a share in the resurrection for the world to come? Now here's the most astonishing thing. Justin gives a simply astonishing answer, which profoundly contradicts later Christian theology and soteriology. Justin says, I do not say this, but those who persecuted and are persecuting Christ and not repenting will inherit nothing in the holy mountain. But the nations that believed in him and repented for what they have sinned, they themselves will inherit, along with the patriarchs and the prophets, and the righteous who have been born from Jacob, even if they, the Gentile Christians, do not keep the Sabbath, nor are circumcised, nor observe the feasts, they will surely inherit the holy inheritance of God. Dialogue 26. So, Justin believes that 
when the Messiah comes? The Gentile Christians are to be gathered to Messianic Jerusalem, the holy mountain of God, to inherit the joys of the kingdom along with the patriarchs, the prophets, and the righteous men and women of Israel. To be clear, this is not the theology of the later church. Trifo more or less repeats the same question a few chapters later. He's asking, pressing the point, because Justin has been trying to persuade him that the law is unnecessary since Noah, Enoch, and the patriarchs did not observe the Sabbath, the festivals, circumcision, and so forth, yet they were deemed righteous as Gentiles. So, Trifo asks, Tell me then, will those who have lived according to the law that was given through Moses live again in the resurrection of the dead in the same way as Jacob and Enoch and Noah? Or not? Again, Justin affirms his belief that the righteous of the Jewish people will inherit the resurrection along with the Gentile Christians, but not on the basis of their observance of the Torah's ceremonial concerns, such as Sabbath observance. Instead, they will be deemed righteous for their observance of the Torah's moral standards and for their righteous living under the broad code of ethical monotheism in the Torah, which is the same criteria by which Gentiles, such as Enoch, Noah, and the patriarchs, were also judged. Justin also believes this to be the same standard by which Gentile Christians will be judged. The answer is so unexpected and so contrary to later formulations of Christian thought that we need to see his full answer. Listen to this. Each one will be saved by his own righteousness. Ezekiel 14, 14 and 20. I have said that those who have lived according to the law of Moses will similarly be saved. For in the law of Moses, what is naturally good, pious, and just has been legislated for those who obey it, aside from ceremonial commandments also practiced under the law, which were recorded to be observed on account of the hardness of the people's heart. Since those who observe the law have also done the universally and naturally good things in the law that are pleasing to God, they will be saved in the resurrection through Christ along with the aforementioned righteous ones, Noah, Enoch, and Jacob. And if there are any others who have become Jews, along with those who recognize this Christ, the Son of God, who, though he was before the morning star and before the moon, endured being made flesh through a virgin of the line of David, so that through this process, the one who acted wickedly from the beginning, the serpent, and the angels made like him, might be dissolved, and death be despised, and, at the time of the second coming of Christ himself, cease completely from those who believe in him and live pleasingly, and be no more. Then some will be sent to be endlessly punished in judgment and condemnation by fire, but others will live in immortality, free from suffering, from corruption, and from grief. Dialogue 45 That's a remarkable answer, and a strong expression of the apocalyptic gospel as transmitted by the apostles. But Trifo is going to push it one step further. 
Since Justin has now allowed for the possibility that Torah-observing Jews who do not confess Christ might qualify for the kingdom, Trifo wonders if it might then and therefore be permissible for Jews who begin to confess Christ to also continue to observe the Torah. Why should they have to desist from observing the Torah after becoming disciples of Yeshua? Trifo asks the question this way. But if some today want to observe the institutions given by Moses, while believing in this Jesus who was crucified, recognizing him to be the Christ of God, and that he has been appointed to be absolute judge of all, and that to him belongs the everlasting kingdom, can they also be saved? Dialogue 46. So Trifo is looking for Justin's permission for a Jew to remain Jewish, in Messiah. He's looking for permission for the existence of Messianic Judaism and Messianic Jews. Justin insists that there's no value in such a person observing the ceremonial commandments of the Torah. After all, the patriarchs did not observe those institutions and they were deemed righteous. Moreover, Justin says, God only enjoined those commandments upon the Jewish people because of the hardness of their heart. Trifo is undeterred by these arguments. He repeats the question, If a person, knowing all of this to be true, and recognizing this man is the Christ, believing in him and obeying him, also wishes to observe the Torah, will he be saved? Justin concedes, In my opinion, Trifo, such a person will be saved. So long as he does not try to persuade others, I mean those Gentiles whom Christ has circumcised from error, to observe the same things he does, telling him that they will not be saved unless they do. Dialogue 47. In other words, Justin allows for the existence of Messianic Jews. He goes on to explain that he knows Jewish believers who observe the Torah and that he is willing to fellowship with them, even though many Christians are not willing to do so. Perhaps alarmed to realize how far Trifo has led him, Justin offers a few caveats and a little backpedaling. He opines that those who live according to the Torah without believing in Christ will not be saved, especially if they have cursed Christ through participation in a liturgical imprecation against him in the synagogue liturgies, such as Birkat HaMinim. Such a person who intentionally anathematizes Christ and faith in him for salvation without repentance, will not escape the vengeance of fire. Dialogue 47. Nevertheless, Justin seems soft on his exclusion of the Jewish people who neither confess nor curse Christ. To wrap up his discussion of who will be saved, Justin moves the discussion away from Trifo's concerns about Jewish status and Torah observance. Justin points toward a text of Ezekiel, which he previously cited, in which the prophet warns that a righteous man who falls into sin will be punished as a sinner, while a sinner who repents and turns to godliness will be rewarded with life as a righteous person. When Ezekiel says, the wicked shall surely die, while the penitent shall surely live, he understands death to refer to damnation and life to refer to eternal life in the kingdom and the world to come. The one who does what is just and right 
he shall surely live. Here's that passage from Ezekiel 33, verses 12 through 19. Listen to this. The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered. But in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He shall surely live. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. Again, that's Ezekiel 33, 12-19. Justin understands salvation not in terms of a static inward state of being, but rather in terms of a righteous verdict to be issued in the heavenly court on the day of the Lord. Therefore, in his view, no one is saved until the day of judgment, when they are saved from the fire of God's wrath. Justin places the criteria for salvation squarely upon repentance from sin in pursuit of godliness. For the kindness and love of God and the boundless riches of his wealth regard the one repenting from his sins, and as Ezekiel declares, considers him as righteous and without sin, and the one moving away from piety or righteous deeds to injustice and godlessness is recognized as sinful, unjust, and impious. Dialogue 47 This may sound like works-based salvation or legalism, to Protestant ears, but it's a lot closer to the teaching of Yeshua and the apostles than the Protestant gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone, sola fide. As you know, our master Yeshua and the apostles continually proclaimed an urgent message of repentance. He commands all people everywhere to repent. They should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Acts 17.30, Acts 2620. Grace remains an important part of the equation. Justin explains that when the sinner repents, God's grace records the penitent sinner as righteous and without sin. On the other hand, a person who turns away from godliness and falls into a life of sin will be judged as wicked. Justin punctuates that thought with a non-canonical saying of the Master. Therefore, our Lord Jesus Christ said, In whatever state I find you, in that I will also judge you. The meaning of the saying, at least in this context, is that when the Messiah comes, he will issue his judgments not on the basis of one's former wickedness, 
or righteousness, but on the basis of one's current state of penitence or iniquity. And this is what Yeshua taught on the efficacy of repentance. Consider the parable of the day laborers. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Agreeing with the laborers for denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us, he said to them. You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Another parable. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went out to the first and said, Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son, and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first one. Yeshua said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. There are many similar parables, such as the journey parables, in which the master of the house leaves his servants in charge of the estate while he is away, returns unexpectedly, and rewards the servants according to whether he finds them doing their duty or neglecting it. This also reminds me of what is written at the end of the Didiki regarding the end of days. Be vigilant for your life. Do not let your lamps be snuffed out. Do not let your loins be ungirded, but be ready. For you do not know the hour in which our master is coming. Gather together often, seeking what is appropriate for your lives, because your entire time of faithfulness will be of no benefit to you if you will not have been made complete at the end of time. Didache 16, 1 and 2 In whatever state I find you, in that I will also judge you. And this saying teaches two principles the efficacy of repentance, and the jeopardy of sin and the fear of the Lord. The sages say, In the place where the balei tshuva, the true penitents, stand, even the completely righteous cannot stand. As a man does, so he is, righteous or wicked. 
Justin Martyr is not the only one to report this saying of the master. It also appears in Clement of Alexandria. Here's a quote from Clement's Who is the Rich Man? Forgiveness of past sins, then, God gives, but of future, each one gives to himself. And this is to repent, to condemn the past deeds, and beg oblivion of them from the Father, who only of all is able to undo what is done, by mercy proceeding from him, and to blot out former sins by the dew of the Spirit. For by the state in which I find you will I judge, also is what in each case the end of all cries aloud, so that even in the case of one who has done the greatest good deeds in his life, but at the end has run headlong into wickedness, all his former pains are profitless to him, since at the climax of the drama he has given up his part. While it is possible for the man who formerly led a bad and dissolute life on afterwards repenting, to overcome in the time after repentance the evil conduct of a long time. According to these early Christians, salvation was not a fixed asset that one could possess. Instead, salvation referred to being saved from the wrath of God on the day of judgment. As Yeshua said, In whatever state I find you, in that I will also judge you. The emphasis is on repentance. And that should not be surprising. After all, that worldview was implicit as the central expectation of Yeshua's gospel message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Take on my yoke And learn from me And find rest for your soul